Matthew chapter 14, verse 22 through verse 33. <clears throat> Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him into the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Joelle. Uh, so we are beginning a brand new sermon series this morning in which we're looking at various encounters with Jesus. When you read the Gospels, those are the historical accounts of Jesus' life, uh, every encounter with Jesus is remarkable. But some encounters are just strange. And these strange encounters come in a couple of different categories. Some stories are really familiar, and because they're so familiar, we think we already know what they mean. Other stories are just so strange, we know we have no idea what they mean. But all of these encounters we're going to look at this, uh, in this series are strange in one way or another. So the goal in this series is to let the strangeness of the story wake us up to the reality of Jesus. Our goal in this series is to let the strangeness of the story wake us up to the reality of Jesus. Now, this morning, we're beginning with a very famous story, Jesus walking on the water. Even if you don't know much about Jesus, this is one of those images that has just come down to us. So to talk about walking on water is a term that we use to talk about somebody doing something impossible. But when you go back to the original story and read it, what's going on here? It's a strange story. I mean, here's Jesus. He's walking on the water. The disciples think he's a ghost. And then you have this bit about Peter getting out of the boat and walking on the water also. I mean, what is going on here? Well, let me ask you a question. What is the most important thing in the whole world? Obviously, lots of things are important, but if you had to pick just one thing, one thing in which everything in your life should revolve around, one thing that if you have this one thing in your life, then your life will have meaning and purpose. But if you don't, you won't. Whatever it is, something is, you're picturing something in your mind right now, maybe multiple things. 
And so part of the challenge is to figure out, well, which of these things is the most important thing? And whatever you're picturing, your neighbor's probably picturing something different. So does that mean that we all just have to figure this out for ourselves? Or is it possible that there really is one important thing that is the most important thing for all people in all times and in all places? Well, believe it or not, this story that we just read helps us with this question. So let's take a look at it and see three things this morning in this story. There's an uncontrollable person, there's an unsustainable project, and there's an unmerited power. An uncontrollable person, an unsustainable project, and an unmerited power, okay? First, we see an uncontrollable person here. This story we just read um, comes immediately after another very famous story. Jesus miraculously feeds thousands of people. And these two stories actually go together. And here's why. Think about it. If, if somebody came into the world with power to end world hunger, how would you respond to that person? Because obviously, you know, talking about important things, that's a pretty important thing. And obviously, Jesus thinks it's important too because he's the one who's feeding people here. But here's the problem. And you actually really see it in the Gospel of John that as soon as Jesus feeds everybody, they want to make him king on the spot and begin a political uprising against Rome. Like, viva la revolution. The problem is they see Jesus with this power and they want to co-opt Jesus and his power and bring him into the service of, uh, of an agenda that they already have. The problem is wanting to get control over Jesus, wanting to make Jesus a tool or an instrument in some agenda that you already have for your life. So what does Jesus do? Well, that's where this story begins. Um, Jesus sends his disciples across the sea in a boat while he goes up on a mountain to pray. And then it says, in the fourth watch of the night, which is between three and six in the morning, he came to them walking on the sea. Now, for us, walking on the sea is impressive. It's even miraculous, but not much more than that. But for a Jewish person, this is loaded with meaning. Because it's pointing back to the Exodus, the story of how God rescued Israel out of slavery in Egypt and brought them into freedom. How? Through the sea. And you see the Bible talk about this in many places. For instance, in Psalm 77, it's talking about God. It says, you with your arm redeemed your people. When the waters saw you, O God, they were afraid. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Or in the book of Job, it's talking about God. It says, God alone trampled the waves of the sea. Now, here's Jesus, and he's doing that. Friends, the point couldn't be any more clear. Jesus is the God of the universe who rescued Israel. In fact, when you go to the New Testament and look at the letter of Jude, Jude was writing to the early church, and in the beginning, he's talking about Jesus. He says, I want to remind you about Jesus, and then he just has this little comment that he inserts. You know, Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt. He's explicitly saying that Jesus is the God of the Exodus. Jesus is the God of Moses. Jesus is the God of the universe who rescued Israel. Are you starting to see the point here? Who is Jesus? 
Is he someone who comes into your life with power, but that power is there to serve you in some agenda that you already have for your life? Or is Jesus someone who comes into your life with power, but that power is there to transform you according to an agenda he has for your life? This is especially important for us, whether you're exploring faith or even if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus. Because, you know, look at the disciples. They were followers of Jesus. And yet they needed to learn what Jesus is showing them here. In fact, if you look at how they responded, when they see Jesus, it says that they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. Notice their default response is not to say, oh, Jesus is the God of the universe. Their default response is to assign some other meaning, some other interpretation, some other identity to Jesus, but not to receive him for the reality of who he really is. Here's why this is so important for us. Who do you say that Jesus is? You know, in our culture, the options are really endless. For instance, Stephen Prothrow is a professor of American religion at Boston University. And you've probably seen him on TV because you know how when news shows want to do a story, they always bring in an expert to talk about whatever the story is about? When news shows want to do a story on religion in America, Stephen Prothrow is one of the experts they call in. He wrote a book some years ago called American Jesus. And in the beginning of that book, he says that um, religion in America is a sprawling spiritual marketplace full of a huge menu of options. It's, it's mix and match, pick and choose. It's all part of your own customized spirituality. And one of the interesting things he points out, really the whole book is about this, is how here in America, everybody, and not just Christians, but Hindus and Buddhists and New Age people and even secular people, everybody appropriates Jesus for, for whoever they want him to be. The, the, in, in America, in our spiritual marketplace, Jesus can be whoever you want him to be. So here in America, he goes through the list. He said, you know, Jesus could be an ethical teacher. He could be a self-help guru. He could be a revolutionary activist. He could be a political mascot. In the spiritual marketplace, Jesus can be whatever you want him to be. But here's the problem with that. When you listen to real historians, you know, people whose job it is to actually do the research according to established scientific standards, pretty much all of them point out the same thing. Really, it's two things they point out. Number one, that the Gospels, those are the historical accounts of Jesus' life, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the letters of the Apostle Paul. Historians consider these to be uh, genuine, reliable historical documents. And as a result of that, they say that there really are facts, historical facts, that we can know about Jesus with a reasonable degree of confidence. That's what the historians are saying. So, for instance, E.P. Sanders is one of the greatest historical experts on Jesus in the world. And by the way, he somebody who describes himself as a secular Protestant. And I'm not really sure exactly what that means. But um, let's just, it's safe to say that E.P. Sanders is not someone who's advocating a conservative, orthodox Christian theological agenda, okay? Here's what he says. There are no substantial doubts about the general course of Jesus' life, when and where he lived, approximately when and where he died, and the sort of thing that he did during his public ministry. Friends, here's the point. Jesus is not just whatever you want him to be. We're not talking about some mythical figure from Middle Earth or Wakanda. 
Jesus is not whatever you want him to be. And if, so if you really want to come into contact with the real Jesus, especially if you're exploring faith, I would encourage you to pick up one of the Gospels and read it all the way through. Have you ever done that? When you do, one of the things you find out is that the Jesus you meet in the Gospels does not present himself to you as whatever you want him to be. He presents himself to you as the God of the universe who walks on the sea. And by the way, one of the other things we know historically is that from day one, the very first Christians were worshiping Jesus as God. That includes the guys on the boat, by the way, the ones who actually knew Jesus better than anybody else. Friends, I can't prove to you that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. But the people who knew him best, that's what they thought he was. They encountered an uncontrollable person, somebody who does not bow down to their agenda, but who came with an agenda for their lives. And that leads to our next point. We've just seen an uncontrollable person. But secondly, we see here there's an unsustainable project. Because if we go back to our story, what's happening with the disciples when, um, when they see Jesus in the boat? It says that the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Now, here's the picture. And remember, these are experienced fishermen. And yet, here they are, rowing as hard as they can against the wind, but they're making zero progress. You know what this means? This is not just um, some random detail to juice up the story. This is a picture of the futility of human efforts to make progress in this world in our own power. It's an unsustainable project. Why? Because Jesus isn't in the boat with them. The more we keep trying to create a better life or a better world for ourselves in our own power without Jesus, it's like rowing against the wind. We'll never get where we want to go. And here's why this is so important for us. Remember that question we began with? What is the most important thing in the world? We live in a culture that says, well, there are no absolute transcendent truths. The only absolute is that everyone should have freedom to create their own absolutes. And especially in our culture, the one absolute is that everyone should have freedom to create their own authentic identity. In our culture, self-creation is the absolute. Self-creation is the one most important thing, and everything else in the world exists to serve that goal, including God. So if you are exploring faith, or even if you believe in God, or even if you call yourself a Christian, our culture trains us to look at God as a supplement or one consumer option among many. And you mix and match, you pick and choose, and it's all part of your own customized self-creation project. In our culture, God is nothing more than a tool that exists to serve you in your own personal journey of self-expression. And if you want to see that, just look at the way we talk about God in our culture. We say things like, well, if faith, what, works for you. That's great, but if not, hey, that's okay too. Or we say things like, for me, right? For me, faith is important. Our emphasis is on personal choice, personal individual freedom. For us, that's the essential. God is optional because we live in a world that says the most important thing is individual freedom. But we also live in a world that feels increasingly meaningless and empty, don't we? And I know that correlation is not causation. We all know that principle. But here's the question. Is, is it possible that there's any connection between those two things? 
between, on the one hand, our um, emphasis, or really our enthronement of individual freedom, and our experience of meaninglessness in this world. Because on the one hand, we have all this freedom now to create our own identity, to create our own meaning. And yet, on the other hand, all of that freedom is putting so much pressure, it's a burden on us, it's producing all kinds of anxiety and depression and exhaustion because the pressure to create your own identity, an identity that can endure and that can withstand all the misrecognitions of others, that is an unsustainable project. Because we long for a deeper meaning and a bigger story. And it's not one that that we create for ourselves. We long for a bigger story that is created for us and then we're invited to step into that. The problem in our culture is that our society doesn't provide that for us and yet we are starving for an experience of it. For instance, uh, there was a documentary a couple of years ago called The Bill Murray Stories. I don't know if you know this, but Bill Murray's kind of like Bigfoot. There are all these sightings, um, urban legends about how Bill Murray will just show up and randomly insert himself into people's ordinary lives, like playing in a softball game, or washing someone's dishes, or um, helping a band set up their equipment at a house party, or being a bartender somewhere. He's famous for doing stuff like this, and it really, you, it changes people's lives. It really affects them, and it's not hard to understand why, because meeting a celebrity, that's exciting. I remember several years ago, I was in the lobby at the Chase Hotel, just a few blocks from here one night, and there was a big commotion in the lobby, and somebody said, ooh, Michael Jordan is here. And I looked, and I didn't see him. But I was so excited about just the possibility of seeing a celebrity. I mean, you know, think about it. We get excited about that. But you know the thing about celebrity sightings is they're trying to get away from you. Celebrities do not show up at your wedding and say, Hi, I'm Idris Elba. Hi, I'm Benedict Cumberbatch. Can I be in your wedding pictures? Celebrities do not do that. But Bill Murray does. This is a real wedding picture, and he just showed up. Now, here's the thing. Throughout the documentary, um, it's really illuminating to hear the way people talk about the effect that meeting Bill Murray had on their lives, that it was a transformational experience for them, that it produced like, almost like an ecstasy or jouissance in their lives, like it really changed their lives. In fact, one of the most interesting things, and it actually comes up several times throughout the movies, that people say Bill Murray was waking people up. He was waking them up. Why do they say that? Because on the one hand, you know, Bill Murray is just a regular person like everybody else. But on the other hand, he's Bill Groundhog Day ghost-busting Murray. (laughs) You know, why do people say he's waking them up? Because we are swimming in individual freedom, and yet... There is no meaning left in our world. The more freedom we have, the less meaning we have. Our culture says that all meaning, all significance, all identity is located inside of ourselves. And if that's true, that sucks all of the meaning out of the world around us. So now we're drowning in freedom, but literally starving for meaning. Why is Bill Murray waking people up? What, what is that? Ha- what's going on with people when that happens? Bill Murray is is waking people up to the possibility that there really is a bigger meaning that they can be a part of. 
And here's the thing. I think it's beautiful that he would use his celebrity and leverage it like that in order to do that for people. I mean, we really do need to be woken up to the possibility that there is a meaning out there that's bigger than us. But here's the thing. It doesn't have to be Bill Murray. I mean, a celebrity, it could be any celebrity, because again, in our culture, it, it isn't about the person or the thing. That person, that thing, that celebrity is just there as a tool or an instrument. It's there to serve you in your own journey of personal self-expression. But one of the big things this passage is showing us is that if we really do want to find that deeper meaning, that it does have to be Jesus. One of the big messages in this passage is that in order to find that meaning we want, I mean, look at the disciples. It's teaching the disciples. It's teaching you and me that to wake up to the reality of who Jesus is. Because if you think about it, you realize this isn't the first time that the disciples were in a storm on a boat with Jesus, is it? If you know the story earlier in the Gospels, another very famous story, Jesus is in, in the boat with the disciples. He's asleep. A storm comes. He calms the storm. And they say, do you remember what they say? Who is this? What kind of person is this? They're not sure. But now here's Jesus. And instead of calming the sea, he's walking on the sea. And then as soon as they bring him into the boat, it says those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. Friends, here's the message. This passage is showing us that unless Jesus, unless you take him into the boat and make him the center of your life, not on the periphery, not a supplement, not a tool or an instrument in some agenda that you have for yourself, but unless Jesus is in the center of your life, then all of our efforts, all of our human-centered, human-powered projects are nothing more than rowing against the wind. It's an unsustainable project. And that leads to our last point. We've seen there's an uncontrollable person. We've seen an unsustainable project. But lastly, we see here an unmerited power. Because here's the big question everything here is pointing to. I mean, what have we seen? Jesus is the God of the universe walking on the sea. And the big question is, how do you respond to someone like that? Well, if we look at Peter's bit in this story, remember, you know, there's this whole part here about Peter getting out of the boat and walking on the water, and I think it's showing us something really important, but it's not something that's immediately obvious to us. Because the popular interpretation of this is to say, oh, this is teaching us that if we just have enough faith, we can do anything. We can walk on the water. It's all about what we can do if we just have enough faith. But one of the things I discovered when I started studying this passage is that there's a really long history of interpretation. Many people have said, well, actually, maybe this wasn't portraying Peter in the most positive light to begin with. In other words, maybe Peter should never have tried to get out of the boat and walk on the water in the first place. And so, you know, I mean, especially if you're familiar with Peter's story, um, Peter's character, he's very impulsive. He's always getting ahead of himself. He's always um, overconfident in himself. And then Jesus has to rebuke him and correct him. And so the idea is that this story is just another example. Oof, Peter blew it. Peter failed. And now Jesus is rebuking him. And the big idea here is that we shouldn't be too overconfident, but we should instead be humble. So which is it? Is the big idea here, is it about what we can do if we just have enough faith? Or is it about, we shouldn't be too confident and we should be more humble? I actually tend to agree with some of the more thoughtful commentators that said, well, 
maybe it's a little bit of both. And when you put both of these things together, there's a bigger, more important message that comes into focus. What is that message? Well, if we go back to the story, how does it go? The disciples see Jesus. They're terrified. Jesus says, don't be afraid. It's me. And then Peter answered, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus says, come. Which right there, I think, is showing us that um, it wasn't horrible for Peter to want to get out of the boat and come to Jesus because Jesus says, come on. But then Peter starts to sink. He's doing so well for a few moments, but, but now he's going down. Can you imagine how terrifying that would have been? I don't know if you've ever been to the ocean and gotten knocked over by a wave. It, it just picks you up and shakes you like a rag doll. It's terrifying. That's what's going on with Peter here. He's going down. He's sinking. You know the real message I think this passage is showing us is this, that it's not about what we can do if we just have enough faith. It's about the one who pulls us through when we don't. Because look at Peter. What does he say? That when Jesus appears walking on the water, Peter says, Lord, if it really is you, command me what? To, to come to you on the water. He doesn't say, Lord, command me to walk on the water. In other words, it's not about Peter being all focused on doing something amazing and miraculous. What does he say? Lord, command me to come to you. Peter's focus is not on doing something miraculous and amazing. His focus is on Jesus. But then he starts to sink. Why? Because when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Now, how do you see the wind? Technically speaking, you don't. But the point's pretty clear, isn't it? Peter's problems began when he took his eyes, his focus off of Jesus, and started looking at all the turmoil around him. And so the message here is what? Keep your eyes on Jesus, right? The message is, when you're in the middle of the waves, keep your eyes on Jesus. But here's the thing. I don't know about you, but I don't always keep my eyes perfectly on Jesus. Newsflash for you here. I'm a human being. And even more than that, I'm a fallen human being in a fallen world. And I am far, far from being as holy and righteous and perfect and faithful as I ought to be. But Jesus is not. But what does Jesus do when Peter's sinking? It says, immediately he reached out his hand and took hold of him. That word literally means seized him or grabbed hold of him. Friends, it's not about what we can do if we just have enough faith. It's about the one who pulls us through when we don't. About the one whose grip on you is more powerful than the waves grip on you. One of my earliest memories as a child was when I was about five years old. Um, my family moved from Cleveland, Ohio to sunny Southern California. And I, my parents had enough of winter, I guess. Um, but our next door neighbors, one afternoon, our next door neighbors invited us over to their, um, their house to visit. And they had a pool in their backyard. And they invited us to come swimming. So here we are. We show up with our towels and we're wearing our bathing suits. And my brother and my, now my little brother he was a year younger. He was four years old at the time. We're from Cleveland. We don't know how to swim. We've never been in a pool. And we certainly don't know how dangerous water can be. So here we are talking to our neighbors. And my brother walks over to the edge of the pool and steps down into the shallow end of the pool. But then I guess he took a step too far. 
lost his footing and slipped into the deep end and started to drown. And I'm sure what must have happened is that he started to cry out. I don't really remember. What I do remember is seeing my dad shoot across the pavement, leap into the pool, and pull my brother out. I have never seen someone move so fast or so powerfully. In fact, it was seeing my dad move with such force and power. That's what really frightened me far more than the fact that my brother was drowning. I wasn't even really aware of that. I was filled with a sense of awe and also a sense of security and safety, realizing that all of that power in my dad could be leveraged for me at a moment's notice. Friends, when you're sinking, when you're drowning, when you're going down, when life is filled with turmoil, Jesus is the one who pulls you through. And the amazing thing about the gospel is that the way Jesus leveraged all of his power for you was by going into the ultimate storm of the cross for you. Because on the cross, the one who walks on the sea sank in the sea. On the cross, the one who tramples the waves went under the waves. Jesus went under. He was submerged. Jesus on the cross was lost in the storm so that he could pull you through the storm. And if that's true, then that brings us back to that big question we have. How do you respond to someone like this? This passage is showing us. You take him into the center of the boat and you worship him. And especially that means that you renounce your unsustainable projects, your agendas for your life, your control over your life. Because God, Jesus, is is not somebody that that is here to center around you. Really, he's here for you to center everything around him. Have you encountered this uncontrollable person? Again, if you're exploring faith, I encourage you, pick up one of the Gospels, Read it all the way through. Meet this Jesus who walks on the sea. He is not a tool to be used. He is the Lord to be worshipped. And have you renounced your unsustainable projects, your agendas for your life, your control over your life? Look at the one who wields all of his unmerited power on your behalf, going into the sea, into the storm, in order to get you out of the storm. Take Jesus into the center of the boat and center your life around him whose hand is always stretched out to pull you through. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning. You are the God who tramples the waves. You are the God who walks on the sea. You are the God who rescues your people, who does for us what we could never do for ourselves by your grace, by your power. And so, Father, this morning we pray that you would help us once again, yes, to fix our eyes on you, to surrender all of our self-salvation projects, self-creation projects, all of our unsustainable projects. But Lord, even when we fail in doing that, I, I pray that you would give us an ever greater experience of your power, your grace, your everything that you leveraged on our behalf through Jesus and help us to know that you are the one who pulls us through and to surrender our lives to you again and again and again and again, knowing that even when we fail to do that, you are still the God who pulls us through. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.